0: All right, good morning, everybody. Hey, before we get started into Second Peter, let me give you a, a real quick update because some of you guys have been praying for um, for a friend of ours in Central Asia named Harry for a while now. Um, I just got an update a second ago while we were singing uh, from from our brother who, who lives in Central Asia and works amongst those people who said, quote, Harry's alive, which is, which is cause for praise. Um, nobody had heard from him since October the 25th. And uh, just heard from him uh, this morning, which will be tonight there, and he is alive. There's a lot of story there, but praise God, God, he is alive, right? All right, do you have your Bible this morning? Second Peter uh, chapter one is where we're at. Last week we began what what is going to be a two part look at Peter's initial defense against the dismissal of his teachings by the false teachers that had risen up in the church. Remember, the issue in Second Peter is different from the issue in First Peter. The issue in 2 Peter is not persecution from the outside like it was in 1 Peter. No, the threat here in 2 Peter is from within the church. False teachers are rising up and leading people astray into a variety of heresies, which will damn them if they were to believe them. Peter is taking pains to ground these believers in the truth so that they can stand firm, so that they can continue to walk the path of faithfulness that leads to life. One of the ways that the false teachers are approaching the people is by dismissing Peter's preaching as myth, story, and fable. They're saying, oh, Peter isn't talking to you about facts. He's not talking to you about history. He's making up stories that are cleverly designed to lead you the way he wants you to go. So in this passage that we're looking at in chapter 1, Peter is playing some defense by calling witnesses like in a courtroom. Right Last week, we saw him call himself. ...and other apostles as eyewitnesses and ear witnesses to these things. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not telling you fables or myths. I'm telling you what I saw and what I heard with my own ears. This week, we're going to see him call the prophets from the Old Testament... ...as a witness, looking ahead and predicting all of these things that are taking place. The main reference that we looked at in the text last week... ...was to Peter's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration... ...particularly as it overshadowed the second coming... ...or foreshadowed the second coming of Jesus... Which is referred to technically as the parousia. You may remember that word. Um, the coming of Christ, Parousia is is always in reference to the return of Christ, not his incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas time, but the return of Christ that we are anticipating. Uh, that's the word that was used in the text last week. When we reflected on this at the end of the message for application, I asked you, "What do we learn about Jesus in this text?" And Laura reminded of this, reminded us of this just a second ago. He said, we said he's glorious. We see in the text that Jesus is glorious. We see in the text that Jesus is the son of God. We see in the text that he is coming back. All of these things are worth celebrating. And that question, what do we learn about Jesus in this text, is a question we should regularly ask ourselves when we read the Bible, right? When, when we're reading any text, we should say, what do we learn about God here? What do we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ in, in this text? Overall, what we learned last week is there's no one like him. There is no one else like him. And so we should trust him to save us and we should worship him as God in the flesh. We said also in application last week that we can trust the message from the apostles. We can trust the word of God. We can trust the Bible. I'll remind you of what Jim Shattuck said. He said, this text is a reminder that our faith is not rooted in fairy tales and fiction. Our faith is not rooted in fairy tales and fiction. We can trust the word of God. But do we trust the word of God enough to really believe that Jesus is coming back? Do we really believe that Jesus is coming back? And I'm not just talking here about scholastic affirmation that we would say, oh, yeah, of course. I think, I think most everybody in this room would say, yes, I believe that Jesus is coming back. I'm talking about, do you believe this enough that it changes the way you live? We're talking about, do you believe this enough that it impacts the way you behave in this life, knowing that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead? Do we have more than just a scholarly affirmation of these things? Do we have a heartfelt embrace of these things? And then we talked about how we have a story to tell about our experience with Jesus. Just like Peter is saying, these are the things I heard. These are the things I saw. These are the things that I cannot stop speaking about. In a similar way, we have had an experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to tell people what we have seen of him and how he has changed our lives. We need to tell people what we have heard from him as we've studied his word. We need to be witnesses. Not in the sense that we just see and hear things, but in the sense that we tell people what we have seen and heard. Well, like I said earlier, Peter is going to call his second witness in the form of the prophets. Really, the second witness is the scriptures in general. And we're going to double down today on the application that we can trust the Bible. In this season of darkness, in this season of confusion, we need to turn to the Word of God as light and life for us. Until Christ returns and brings all the light forever, we trust the Word of God to lead us in the darkness. Jim Shaddix, again, was spot on when he said, when we come to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 21, which is our text today, We find ourselves at one of the most potent places in all the Bible regarding the inspiration of Scripture. Few passages magnify the supernatural origin and nature of God's Word as clearly and succinctly as this one. This is an important passage for us as followers of Jesus Christ to teach us that we can trust the Word of God to lead us along. And we believe here at First Baptist Church that the Bible is the standard that the Bible is our guide, that the Bible is inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient for all of these things. In fact, this is what we believe at First Baptist Church about the Bible. This is from our statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, and this is from section one. The very first section in our statement of faith is the section about the scriptures. This is what we believe at First Baptist Church. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It's a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture. Is a testimony to Christ, who is Himself the focus of divine revelation. So we believe. And I think what you're gonna see in Second Peter today is we have every reason to believe those things about the Word of God. We have every reason to trust the Word of God. So let's read it together in, in chapter one, Second Peter chapter one. I'm gonna read verses sixteen through twenty-one because that's the that's the bigger section that we've taken in two parts. We're gonna really zoom in on verses nineteen to twenty-one. So hear God's word. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance and made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us that we may know you, that we may see you even in your word and that we may know ourselves rightly in light of who you are. Thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path in these very dark days. Lord, we wanna be a people who do much more than give lip service to the inspiration, sufficiency, authority, inerrancy, and infallibility of your word. We wanna be a people who actually read it, who actually study it, who know it, and who actually obey it. We want to walk in the light of your word in this dark world. Father, forgive us when we take our great access to your word for granted. Forgive us when we neglect it while our brothers and sisters around the world beg for even a bit of access to it. Forgive us when we hear your word and we reject it as if we know better. Forgive us when we settle for the empty advice and platitudes of men rather than your enduring truth in your word. Oh, well, Father, make us a people of the book indeed. We pray in Christ's name and we pray for his sake. Amen. Amen. All right, so look at verse 19. It says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. That's the way NASB reads it. And there are a few places in the text today where a phrase can be legitimately understood in two different ways. Fortunately, in all of those situations today, either way you go, the application is basically the same. And the first one of those is here in this text with the phrase, made more sure. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But before we get to that, we need to consider what Peter is referring to when he speaks of the prophetic word. What's he talking about in the prophetic word? Well, there are some who assume that he's referring only to the words of the prophets in the Old Testament, like what we've been studying in Sunday school recently, right? We've been studying minor prophets. We were looking at Hosea here for a while. Hosea is longer than you remember, right? We've been looking at Hosea, or maybe you would talk about Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, one of those prophets. So there's some people that say that the prophetic word is a reference only to the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. Others will assume that he's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, including the law and the writings, that when he's making this reference, he's looking back on all the Old Testament in referring to them as uh, the prophetic word. Still others, including myself, assume that Peter is referring to all of the scriptures here. And part of why I am confident that the principles that Peter states here are not limited to the Old Testament prophets, the principles are not limited to the Old Testament in general, is the way he talks about Paul's writings, even in this letter. Even in the very letter we're studying right now, he's going to refer to Paul's writings in his contemporary experience as Scripture. Look at it in 2 Peter chapter 3. This is the letter we're studying, right? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. He says, "...therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation." Just also as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand. That's my favorite part. Pastor Dylan loves that part too. Like Paul is hard to understand sometimes. Which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter here is talking about Paul's writings, some of which are hard to understand, right? Which are happening in his very day, right? This is happening in his contemporary life. He's talking about Paul's writings and he refers to them as scriptures by saying Paul's writings and the rest of scriptures people distort. This is assuming that he's making a reference to Paul's writings as scripture. So what I'm saying here is that the principles that Peter is laying out here about the prophetic writings are not only applied to the old testament prophets not only applied to the old testament in general but applied to all the scriptures old testament and new testament based on what peter says about paul's writings here here even in the first century the apostle peter recognizes the uh, the writings of the apostle paul as scripture so we need to apply the principles to all the bible but that's not the real debate in this part of the verse the debate is about what he means by made more sure And you can see the debate in the variety of translations of this verse. In New American Standard, the word made here, made more sure, is supplied to help the translation be more readable in English. ESV says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. NIV says we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. CSB says we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. So you can see some difference even in the way the words are translated, and I I believe that's all legitimate. Basically, there are two ways to understand what's going on here. One is that the transfiguration, which Peter saw and heard on the mountain that he was talking about last week, the transfiguration confirms the message of the Old Testament prophets about the coming and the return of the Messiah. One would say, that thing that I saw confirms all the message of the Old Testament prophets. It's made more sure. The prophets are made more sure based, based on what I saw. The other way to understand it is that the message of the prophets is even more trustworthy than Peter's eyewitness and earwitness experience and account of what happened on the holy mountain. The other way to understand it is to say, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe me in what I was saying to you last week in here, If you don't believe me about what I said I saw and heard, you'll at least believe the Scriptures. You'll at least believe the Old Testament prophets who spoke of these same things. So basically what happens is in both of these arguments, they assume that one must serve the other. Either the testimony of the apostles must serve the Old Testament, or the Old Testament must serve the apostles' eyewitness accounts. And I don't think that's the way it works with the Scriptures, I don't think the Old Testament serves the New Testament exclusively, nor that the New Testament serves the Old Testament exclusively. I think these things both serve the other to show that we have one book with one message and one author, right? So I've shown you this image before, and I want to show it to you again, just partly because it's super fascinating to me. And I want to keep it in front of you. It's beautiful. So basically, if you've heard me talk about this before, what you see here is the product of a, of a Bible scholar and an artist coming together. And the Bible scholar said, I've identified 40,000 places in the Bible where one verse makes an allusion or a reference to another verse. 40,000 cross references, essentially, Right. And he handed that data off to an artist and he said, I want you to display this data that I have found, these cross references in a beautiful way. And so the artist took it and he said, all right, what I'm going to do is at the bottom, I'm going to make all these little lines, these little lines at the bottom. And they each vary in length and they will represent each chapter of the Bible. Maybe you can identify that most readily by Psalm 119, which is the very middle. You see that really long line right in the middle? It's fairly fine, but that's right in the middle of the Bible, and it's a super long chapter, which happens to be mostly about the Word of God, right? It's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, and, and he said, I'll, I'll put the chapters of the Bible on the bottom, and then I'll draw an arc. Every time one chapter makes a reference to another chapter, chapter I'll draw an arc. And so there are 40,000 of these arcs, Right? And so when when we talk about the Old Testament, which is it? Does the Old Testament serve the New Testament? Or does the New Testament serve the Old Testament? I want to say, no, no, no. One book. One book interconnected, mingled up together. One book with one author and one message. That's what we want to rejoice in. And I think that's a beautiful way to display it. To say that when you read the Bible, if you're reading the Old Testament, it's making connections over to the New Testament. And when you're reading in the New Testament, it's making connections over to the Old Testament. And there is one consistent message. And we're going to talk about that a bunch at the end. So we don't need to argue about which one is serving the other. Let's recognize this as one book with one author and one message. Read on in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. The end of verse 19 here is probably the most important part of the text. It's the application of the principles that, that Peter is talking about here. It's the main point from Pastor Peter for us today. First of all, in this phrase, we need to admit that this is a dark place we live in. Right? He says, To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. This world is a dark place, is it not? This life. Is a dark place, and it has been dark ever since the fall. It's a dark place. Turn on the news. Talk to your friends and neighbors. This world is a dark place, and it's full of false teachers. Peter's encountering them in the first century. The church has just been born, right? The church is just just getting started, and there are already people trying to lead her astray, already trying to take Peter's preaching and twist it and lead people down the road to destruction. Nothing has changed today. There's still plenty of false teachers doing the same kind of things as in Peter's day. This world is full of sin, right? Seems like we're, we're, we're creative in our sinning these days. Like making up new ways to contradict God's design for us. Full of sin, full of debauchery, and it seems like darkness pervades. We need to admit that. We need to admit that here in the church, that the world in which we live is dark. We need to teach that to our children so that they know what they're into, so that they know where they live. This is not all as it should be. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. See the brokenness of the world all around you? We do. It's undeniable. And so we are lying to our kids if we say, oh, life is rosy and sweet and everything will fall your way. No, no, no. It's dark. Let's admit that this is a dark place. Secondly, Let's acknowledge in the darkness that the word of God is light. In the darkness, the word of God is light. And this is an image that is is displayed throughout the scriptures. I'll give you a couple examples. One that you've already heard once today and that you're probably already thinking in your mind. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In the midst of the dark world, the word of God is a light for us. Proverbs 6, verse 23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. I really wanted you to hear that first part. The commandment is a lamp, the teaching is a light. That's what we're talking about, the word of God as light in the darkness. But that last part, I want to leave in there because we need to be reminded that reproof for discipline are the way of life. Uh, that's what we talked about in Hosea, right? Why does God discipline his people like that? To bring them to repentance, to lead them to life. There is no life found in sin and rebellion. There is only life found in repentance. That's a secondary point. That's totally free today. It has nothing really to do with the message. But the word of God is light. Psalm 43 verse 30 says, or verse three says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling place. That's what we want to see happen, right? That the light of God in his word would lead us to his presence, right? So what we're seeing here in in the end of verse 19 is we're admitting that this is a dark place. We're acknowledging that the word of God is light to us. And the third thing we need to do is answer all of that by paying close attention to the word of God, right? If we live in the darkness and the word of God is light, then what is our response? Pay close attention to it. Pay close attention to the light. Yesterday, I ran a race um, that, that uh, was on the bike trail, the Tunnel Hill bike trail at Tunnel Hill. And the very first bit of the race, we ran into the dark tunnel, right? Took off, and not a quarter mile in, we went into the tunnel, into the darkness of the tunnel. And what they had done for us this year is they had spread out a few lamps, Lanterns, like camping lanterns. I think there were six of them scattered along the trail. And they were on the ground so that you could see just a little bit. And luckily, there were a couple of dudes who thought ahead and wore headlamps, right? So there was a little bit of light in the tunnel. And then around us, there were, there were a few people with these lights that were like bobbing up and down and going various places. And it was dark, all right? It was dark, and there was light. And I would do well to pay attention to the light that was there so that I could see where I was stepping and I could see the people around me, right? Right? what would have been absolutely foolish of me would, to be say, would, would would have been to say, it's dark and there's only a little bit of light and I can't see very well, so I'll just close my eyes. I'll just close my eyes and go through this tunnel because I can't really see as well as I want to see, so I'll just close my eyes and go for it. Or to be completely foolish and say, it's all darkness, so I'll just walk around with my eyes closed. Brothers and sisters, I think that's the way it works with a lot of us today in the world. We, we, we say... It's a dark place. We admit that the word of God is light, but we walk around with our eyes closed. We don't avail ourselves of the light that God has given us to navigate this dark world, and he has given us the light of his word. We need to avail ourselves of his word so that we don't run into the people around us, so that we don't run into the wall, so that we don't stumble and fall. He has given us light. Let's make ourselves, let's keep our eyes open. Expository commentary says, by pay attention... Peter means to be in a continuous state of readiness to learn of any future danger, need, or error, and to respond appropriately. The need for growth in godliness and the danger of false teaching necessitate careful attention to God's word. The need for growth and the threat of false teaching necessitate careful attention to God's word. Friends, we must pay careful attention to God's word. But how do we do that? If that's the call, if we're going to admit that this world is dark, if we're going to acknowledge that God's word is light and we're going to answer by paying close attention, how do we do that? How do I do that third part? How do I keep my eyes open to the light that God has given us? I'm going to give you three things real quick. We'll spend more time on this at the end. Number one, read, meditate, study, memorize, listen to God's word. Like in, take it daily, read it, study it, meditate on it, open the book and read. Number two, Expositional preaching. One of the reasons why we preach the way we preach here at First Baptist Church is because we believe that this world is dark. We believe that God's word is light, and we want to pay careful attention to it, right? So when you come in, first thing we say is, open your Bible. Open your Bible, and regularly we'll say, look at this. Look down there. I love when I look up to talk to you, and you're looking down Because you're you're wanting to see, is this what it says? Is this really what it says? In fact, that's the third thing. When you listen to preaching, when you listen to someone teach God's word, be a Berean about it. In Acts chapter 17, it says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, a place called Berea. And when they arrived, they went in the synagogue of the Jews. Now these people, the ones in Berea, were more noble-minded than those over in Thessalonica. For they received the word of God with eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Man, let's be that. They received the word with eagerness. They received, they were glad to hear Paul preach the word of God, but they also examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They didn't just take his word for it. They looked for themselves at the light of God's word to see if the things that were coming out of the preacher's mouth lined up with the things that God had already spoken so that they could receive it gladly and rightly. So, How do we pay close attention? If the world is dark, God's word is light, and we should pay attention to it. How do we do that? We read it, we listen to it, we study it, we avail ourselves of the light. Until, Peter says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. He says, you do well to pay attention to the word of God as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This is probably this business of the day dawning and the morning star arising Probably best understood as another reference to the parousia, the return of Christ. Remember, this is one of the f- lies the false teachers are spreading. They're saying there's no return of Christ. Therefore, there's no final judgment. Therefore, you live however you want. Don't, don't, don't worry about sin. Christ's not coming back. There's not going to be any final judgment. Just do whatever you want. You can see how their teaching is catching on. Michael Green When he was speaking about this text and the return of Christ, he said we need to think of it as anticipation and also transformation. We need to think in anticipation of the return of Christ. We need to settle in our minds and in our hearts that he is coming back. That a day is coming when the sky will break open and Christ himself will return, right? We need to recognize that he is the morning star. He is the morning star. He says that of himself in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Right? That that happens to be the last chapter of the Bible. That happens to be one of the very last things that we hear from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the bright morning star who is coming back. We anticipate his return as a fact, right? It's not yet occurred, but it's coming. And so we fix that in our minds and in our hearts. And that fact transforms us. He changes everything. It transforms us in the present. And oh boy, will that transform us on the day when it occurs, right? All the longing for that fullness of his light. In fact, Isaiah speaks of this in chapter nine, verse two, when he says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. That, that happened historically, that happened historically at the incarnation, that happens experientially at our conversion, and that will happen fully and completely and finally at the return of Christ, when everything is set as it should be. Until then, though, Pastor Peter is saying, until that great day of the Lord, until the day of transformation of everything that comes with the day of the Lord, we live with the word of God as our guide. We live with the Bible as our light, the spirit who lives in us. What, what else do we need? As we navigate this dark word world, he's given us the spirit within us. He's given us the word of God to guide us. He's given us the spirit to help us understand the word of God. What else do we need? We need the church. It's good. We need each other in living like this. He's given us everything we need. Is that not where we started in 2 in Peter? He's given us everything we need. In Christ, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness we must avail ourselves of those things we must pay careful attention therefore to these things look at verse 20 he says but know this first of all right that's the the call to action is pay careful attention to the word of god know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation here pastor peter is continuing his lesson about the trustworthiness of the scriptures he's also teaching us a lesson about the untrustworthiness of the false teachers and their teachings Verse 20 is another one of those places where the text can be understood two different ways. On the one hand, Pastor Peter may be saying that we don't have the privilege of making Scripture mean whatever we want it to mean. It's not a matter of one's own interpretation. NASB translation leans that way. ESV also leans that way as if Pastor Pastor Peter is warning us that we don't get to make the scriptures mean whatever we want them to mean. On the other hand, he may be saying that the prophets weren't just giving their own interpretation of the things God was showing them. This is the way the NIV and the CSB lean, that the prophets were interpreting the things that God showed them. And so we can't really trust them. We can trust the things that God showed them, but not necessarily their interpretation of it. I want to say, I want to say amen to both of those things. On the one hand, we don't get to make scripture mean whatever we want it to mean. And on the other hand, the prophets weren't just giving us their own interpretation of the things that God was showing them. We can trust the word of God. We can fully and completely trust the word of God. False prophets do that first thing all the time. False prophets twist the scriptures to support their own agendas and ideas. False prophets don't stand up and throw the book into the garbage can. False prophets don't stand up and say, I've got a different book altogether. False prophets in our day and age stand up with the Bible and they use the Bible to support their agenda, to support their ideas. They don't stand up with the Bible and sit in submission under it and let it guide the way. They use the Bible as a tool to support their own ideas. We don't get to do that. That is not the way the Bible works. We come to the Bible with submission to it. R.C. Sproul said this, this is so good. He said, that, he said God has never given us the right to be wrong about the word of God. You got a lot of rights. You do not have the right to be wrong about the word of God. We must labor to be right about what God has said, to understand it rightly. Jim Shattuck said similarly, none of us has the right to make scripture say whatever we want it to say. God has spoken. That settles it. We want to understand it rightly and submit ourselves to it. We don't get to interpret it any old way we want. We interpret it rightly or we interpret it wrongly. And true prophets delivered the word of God as the word of God. False prophets manipulate it to make it mean what they want it to mean. The true prophets in the Old Testament delivered the word of God. Michael Green said, the prophets did not make up what they wrote. They did not arbitrarily unravel it. They did not blab their inventions of their own accord or according to their own judgment, says John Calvin. In the Old Testament, this was the characteristic of the false prophets who, quote, speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord, Jeremiah chapter 23. So pay attention to the Bible. Pay attention to the Bible. It is the word of God. And be asking the question, what does this mean? Not what does this mean to me? When you study the Bible and you ask yourself the question, what does this mean? That is infinitely better than what does this mean to me? Nobody cares what it means to you. Nobody cares what it means to you. If we're just basing our whole life on what does this mean to you, we come up with 100 or 200 different answers to that question in this room. The question is, what does it mean? What did God mean when he said it? What did the prophet mean when he wrote it? What does it mean? One of, the, one of the transforming moments in my education was when a professor told me, Scripture will never mean something today what it didn't mean when it was written. Scripture will always mean what it always meant. There's one correct meaning, one correct understanding of the Scriptures. And it is our job to understand that rightly and apply it and submit ourselves to it not to take it by the tail and make it mean whatever we want it to mean. Pay attention to the Bible. It is the word of God. Seek a correct understanding of the Bible and then submit to it. And if we're going to do that, we have to come to the Bible with a humble posture of submission in our study. We come to the Bible and we say "We say to God, you have spoken and I know it's true. I want to understand it so that I can obey it. That's the way we study the Bible. Not, God, I've got this thing that I want. Can you show me in your word where it says that's okay for me? Have you done it that way? Let me tell you, if you go that way, you can get it to say anything you want it to say. You can find some verse and lift it out of its context and misunderstand something and say, yeah, go rob the bank. It's going to make you happy. God wants you to be happy. Here's a verse that says something similar to that. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We must come to the Bible with a humble posture of submission and obedience to the Word of God. Read on. Pay attention to the Bible. It's the Word of God. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is a super important verse for our understanding of the inspiration of the Scriptures. The Bible comes not from an act of the human will. That's the first thing we learn. No prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will. Moses didn't get up one morning and say, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll speak for God today. I think I'll just give the people the word of God. Peter didn't wake up one morning and say, I will speak for God today. Didn't come by their will. John MacArthur says what human beings might think or want has absolutely nothing to do with divine prophecy. God chose to speak. God chose to speak through Moses. God chose to speak through Peter. God chose to speak. The Bible comes not from an act of the human will. The Bible comes from God. This is his word. This is his work. It's not primarily Moses' work. It's not primarily Paul's work or Peter's work. It is his work. Tom Schreiner said negatively, prophecy does not originate in the will of human beings. By definition, prophecy is a divine work and cannot be attributed to the ingenuity or native gifts of human beings. Positively, Prophecy hails from God himself. That's why we get excited when we think about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that says, all scripture is inspired by God. Some of your translations say, all scripture is God-breathed. Like it came out of his mouth, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. The Bible comes not from an act of human will. The Bible comes from God himself, breathed out of his mouth and profitable to us in a number of ways. We believe in an idea that scholars refer to as verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Verbal means every word. Every word of scripture is God given. Can I get an amen to that? Like not most of the words, not some of the words, but every word is God-given. All scriptures God-breathed. Plenary means it's fully authoritative. All the parts, plenary, all the parts of the Bible are divinely authoritative. We, we don't get to say, I like that Peter guy. I don't really like that Paul guy. I'm going to leave Paul out and take Peter. Or James, James. I mean, we really like James. Not so much Not so much Ezekiel. I'll do without Ezekiel. We don't get to do that. All the parts of the Bible are divinely authoritative. And inspiration means that God guided the whole process. Verbal, plenary, inspiration. And in guiding the whole process, he didn't set men's personalities aside. He didn't set their backgrounds aside, right? In fact, look at verse 21. The overarching theme, the emphasis seems to be, this is from God. Not from man, it's from God. No prophecy of scripture was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Right? That's the, that's the emphasis, is that this is from God. But notice, after the comment says, but men. Moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God, but he used men in the process. He used his created beings in his image. Used his people in the process and he didn't set their personalities aside. He didn't set their backgrounds aside when he did it. We don't believe in some uh, robotic dictative theory of inspiration, right? Where like Peter just went into a trance and became this robot and he just spoke without his personality. No, no, no. He was carried along. That's the language that's used behind this. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit, but he's still Peter, and you can see his personality. You can read First and 2 Peter and see that it's different than Galatians. It's different than Ephesians. It's different than Matthew. You can read the four gospel accounts and say, I get to know Matthew a little bit. I get to know his personality. And I get to know Luke. Luke's different. Luke's different than Matthew. And yet God is using all these men with their differences, with their personalities, and with their backgrounds to communicate his word to us. So that's why when we do the introduction to a book, I spend some time saying, let's talk about the human author. Let's talk about what we can know about the human author. But at the end of the day, we say, who wrote it? God wrote it. This is God's word. This is God's word. And we want to receive it as that, not just a word from Peter, not just a word from Paul. We want to receive it as a word from the Lord. Because it is ultimately, that's the overwhelming emphasis in verse 21. No prophecy was was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. Spoke from God. So pay attention to the Bible. Pay close attention to the Bible because it is God's word. Amen? Baptists? Amen? For Protestants? Amen? Pay attention to the word of God. So Monday was October 31st. This last week, October 31st. What do we call that? No, it's not Halloween. It's Reformation Day. It's the anniversary of the functional start of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, 1571, Martin Luther, who, by the way, is the author of that first song we sang today. A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther in the 1500s. That's like an old song. People, people sometimes are critical of First Baptist Church. So we, don't, we don't ever sing old songs. 1500s, that song is from the 1500s. it not get much older than that. That was a super old song. Yeah, that was a side note, sorry. 1571, October 31st, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg in Germany. And that effectively launched the Protestant Reformation. Brilliant, amazing, godly things came out of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the battle cries, one of the five battle cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura. That's Latin, That means only scripture. Scripture alone. Scripture alone is authoritative for the faith and practice of the Christian. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Dylan. <laughs> Amen to that. It is not scripture and the Pope that is the authority over us. It is not scripture and the church that is the authority over us. It is scripture alone that is the authority. That's why in our statement of faith it says it is, and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. Scripture alone came out of the Protestant Reformation. This text guided the way for that. Another thing that came out of the Protestant Reformation that is linked to Sola Scriptura is Bible translations. Luther stood on those theses he wrote and was excommunicated from the church. And a death warrant was issued for him. And luckily, a kind benefactor took him in and hid him away in a castle in Wartburg. That's a great place, right? Wartburg. And while he was locked away in that room, he translated the New Testament into the language of the people. No longer in Latin that was inaccessible to most of them, but into the vernacular into the language they spoke. He wanted every believer to be able to read and understand the Bible themselves. And so we're thankful for the Protestant Reformation, right? We're we're thankful to stand on Scripture alone as the authority over us. We're thankful to have the Bible in our languages. Listen, in response to this, we say, what a privilege. What a privilege this is to have the Word of God available to us what a privilege it is to have such access to the word of god did you know that you can go buy a bible and no one's going to put you on a list no one's going to put you on a list and hunt you down later to try to kill you did you know that you can share the bible with your friends and no one no one really cares in america no authority is going to come and arrest you did you know that when the sirens go by here they're not coming to arrest us for getting together like this Let's not take that for granted. What a privilege that we have the word of God, that God has spoken. What a privilege that we have access to it. What a privilege that we have so many resources and so many good teachers to help us along as we understand the Bible. You know that we have brothers and sisters who just have like a page. Like they live in some restricted place and they've heard the gospel, they've repented of their sins, they've trusted in Jesus Christ, but they don't have the whole Bible. They might have none of the Bible in their heart language, Maybe they've got a page, just a fraction of it. One time, Laura and I sent some money to Voice of the Martyrs because they were, they were printing the entire Gospel of Mark on Mylar balloons in South Korea. And when the wind was blowing right, they filled those Mylar balloons up with helium so that they would float over into North Korea and the North Korean soldiers would shoot them down. We were hoping that those, those Gospel of Mark segments of Scripture would land in the hands of believers. They weren't very expensive You buy a bunch of them just in the hopes that the word of God would get in the hands of the people of God or that it would get in the hands of unbelievers and they would read it and it would forever change their lives like it did for us. What a privilege. This is it. Christian, in this room, what a privilege you have to have the word of God, have such unprecedented access to it, to have such great resources so that you can understand it and what a responsibility that carries with it. Responsibility to avail ourselves of it and not neglect it. Imagine imagine you're a believer in North Korea and all you've got is that Mylar balloon that has the gospel of Mark on it. That's all you have of God's word. And you pour over that thing every day and you've worn it out and you've shared it with your friends. And then you hear that there are a bunch of believers in Harrisburg, Illinois, who could pull out their phones and, and see 15 different English translations, 1,000 different study Bibles with study notes, and find out that they never even read it. Imagine you're that North Korean believer who, who just hangs on for dear life to that one little bit of God's word that he's got, and you hear that there are believers in Harrisburg who have unprecedented access, unrestricted access, and they never even read it. What an insult. What an insult so many of us are to those brothers and sisters over there. And what fools we are for not availing ourselves of the access God has graciously granted to us. What fools we are to not eat of the bread of life that he has given to us. What fools we are to starve ourselves when the table is set with a feast every day. What a privilege we have here. And what a responsibility to avail ourselves of it and not neglect it and to carefully handle it. I hope you know that when we stand up to preach to you, there is a weight on our shoulders. We do not want to lead you astray when it comes to God's Word. We want to be very careful to rightly proclaim God's Word to you. What a responsibility this is! What a privilege and what a responsibility. How do we pay attention? How do we pay careful attention to these things in the midst of a dark world with the light of God's word available to us? How do we pay careful attention? Let's think about this some more. We've got to read. We've got to study. We've got to meditate and memorize and listen to God's word. In other words, we need to be disciplined in our personal devotional life. And, and guess what? There's good news. A new year is coming. A brand new year is about to roll over and you need to go ahead and make a plan for what your devotional life is going to look like. What's your Bible intake going to look like in 2023? But don't wait till 2023 to read the Bible, right? Don't say, Pastor Chris said we've got to make a plan for 2023 and I've got a plan and I'm going set it, to set it aside until then. No, no, no. Maybe maybe here's what I want you to check. Read the whole thing before 2023. How about that? Who would take that up? Who's been neglectful of God's word in 2022? You've basically read none of it other than what we've shared in here. You've read none of it in 2022. I'm going to challenge you read, the, read it all before 2023. Make up for lost time. Make a plan, involve other people. I was asking a group of guys recently what's helping you grow right now as a Christian? What, what's, what's most helpful in your life right now in your walk with Jesus? Several of them said daily Bible reading. Daily Bible reading in a plan with other guys. Daily Bible reading with other brothers to hold each other accountable. That's what's helping me grow most. That's a really good answer. That will help you grow. I promise you. Listen to expositional preaching. We, pay, we heed Pastor Peter's advice to pay careful attention by doing expositional preaching so that you can see for yourselves what's in the book. And when you're listening to preaching, be Berean. We preachers have a responsibility to faithfully communicate God's word to you. You listeners have a responsibility to make sure it's faithfully communicated. You're not sponges. You're active listeners. Be like the Bereans who receive the word of God with readiness and examine the scriptures daily to see if it's so. And if it's not, like if we're teaching you something, you're like, that's not so. Let's talk about that. Don't just let it go. Let's talk about that. We want it to be so. And if you will pay careful attention to God's word from the beginning to the end, if you pay careful attention to God's word, you will see that it is telling one big story. Remember that image of the arcs? The application of that is one book, one story, one author. There is one big story being told in the Bible. And Sally Lloyd-Jones in a children's book The Jesus Storybook Bible nails it when she says, the Bible isn't a list of rules. It's not a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is, it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. From the beginning to the end, you see the story of creation, you see the story of the fall and you see the story of redemption. We were created to live in a relationship with God, but we chose to sin. We we're Separated from God. and He sent his son to reconcile us to himself. He sent his son to save us. He sent his son to be a sacrifice in our place so that we could have a restored relationship with him. That's the best story, right? And every story in the Bible is telling that story. Maybe today is the day when you see it come together as a beautiful picture. You know who he is? You know who that baby is? You know who the missing piece of the puzzle is? That's Jesus. Maybe today is the day that your eyes are open to that and you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. I invite you to do that. I invite you to come talk to one of us pastors if you have questions about what that looks like. We'd love to talk to you more about the best story you've ever heard. The best thing about this story is it's true. It's true. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we are so thankful uh, for your word. And we do want to be people of the book, indeed people of the book, not merely giving lip service to write statements about your word, but real students, real followers, real disciples who study and know and obey your word, who walk in the light of your word in the midst of this dark world. got I pray for your people that you will renew in us a desire to pay close attention, to pay close attention to what you have said to us in your word. And I pray that you will stir life into those who are dead, that you'll bring light into those who are only dark that we bring hope where there's only hopelessness, that you will open the eyes of boys and girls, men and women, to see the missing piece of the puzzle is Jesus. I pray that you'll give them faith to trust in Christ, give them repentance to turn away from sin and walk in faithfulness to you, and that you'll save them for your glory, for their good, for sure, for your glory, so that you will receive the praise that you are due. We pray all this in Jesus' name.